uh, Jim Eggert, did you make a mention of the Dead Theologians Society? You did not, okay. Um, there's an error in the bulletin. Uh, it does not meet on Tuesday at 6.30. It meets on Wednesday at 6.30. Um, by the way, uh, one of the news little papers or that has a website here in Brandon uh, mentioned attending the Dead Theologian Society is one of the ten things you can do in Brandon and has it on their website. <laughs> so um, we get together. We, what, there's four or five of us get together over in the office on Wednesday morning drink some coffee and and we've been reading John Calvin so if you'd like to join us we are in chapter book 1 reading chapter 7 through 10 this week and uh, I find it fascinating anyway um, if you will open your your copy of the scriptures to Acts chapter 22 We'll be looking this morning at uh, verses 22 through all the way through chapter 23. So chapter 22, verse 22 through chapter 23, verse 35. I'm going to do what I did last week, and that is read the passage as we come to it. Um, So let's uh, begin with prayer. Father, as we have your word open in front of us, your um, inspired, uh, inerrant, authoritative, perfect word that gives life to our souls as it points us to our Lord Jesus. So we pray that you would be our teacher this morning, that your spirit would uh, open our eyes, our ears, and especially our heart to learn what you would say to us in order that we might more faithfully Follow our Lord Jesus. Love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This passage means that God has determined the length of your life even before you were born. Uh, You will not live one second beyond what God has determined. And the opposite is true. You will not die one second before God has determined or has predetermined. Do you believe that? That's exactly what the Scripture says. And I was thinking about this doctrine, and I I thought maybe I could put it to the test. Um, At night, that stretch along Lumsden, uh, between Lithia Pinecrest and Bryan Road, uh, just west of the little... um, of the, the the gymnastic center and the gas station, so between Brian and 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 uh, the gymnastic center, the CVS, um, that stretch of road is very dark at night, and um, I was thinking. Maybe I could put on my black preaching robe, put on a, a black hat, and my my black shoes, uh, and lay out in Lumsden Road one night uh, and see 
if I get hit. Because if God has predetermined that I won't die for a number of years, then I should be perfectly safe, right? No, of course not. That would be pretty dumb. I'd end up as roadkill, like one of those uh, possums or whatever laying on the side of the road with their tongue hanging out. I mention this because our text raises the issue of human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. And what I mean by the sovereignty of God is the Bible teaches that God is the king of the universe and that everything happens according to his will. Uh, Lamentations 3.37 Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities... The Hebrew word there is the word ra, means evil. So we could even say... Um, both calamities are evil and good things come. Uh, Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have been chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about Him being in control because He is the King of the universe. And so this issue of human responsibility and God's sovereignty, if God is completely in control of every event and every circumstance, as the Bible says He is, what does that mean for our actions, our freedom, and our responsibility? Does God's sovereignty and our human responsibility intersect at any point? Uh, If so, where? Which one has the priority? Does one swallow the other? Does God's sovereignty swallow up our human responsibility? Or does our responsibility overcome and supersede God's sovereignty? I'm not going to give you a theological answer to to these questions this morning. I've endeavored to do that. Uh, I've attempted, maybe is the better word, to do that on different occasions. Uh, Rather, I'm going to address this question practically. In other words, how do we live as Christians in a world where God is sovereign and we are responsible moral creatures? Because it's tempting to say if God in His sovereignty is controlling all things, then we don't need to act. Or to say, if God, is, if God in His sovereignty is in control of people's eternal destiny, then we don't need to evangelize. Or again, if God, is, if God in His sovereignty has promised to take care of our, our physical needs, then we only need to concern ourselves with the spiritual and we can ignore the physical. We're going to see this morning that the Apostle Paul uses all the means available to him as a means of promoting righteousness and also of promoting the gospel. Uh, It's surprising in our text how often he uses non-religious means in order to promote the goals of righteousness and the spread of the gospel. Now you're going to remember from last week Uh, that Paul, um, we saw last week, was being beaten by the Jewish crowds. 
um, it was literally about to be torn apart. They were kicking him, they were beating him, and all of a sudden he was rescued by the Roman soldiers and who were stationed there in the city of Jerusalem. And then as the soldiers were dragging him away to safety, Paul asked the, the uh, Roman tribute, the Roman commander, May I say something to the crowd? And uh, he was given permission. And so Paul stands up and addresses this great crowd of, of Jews that just hate him and were trying to kill him. And he essentially um, testifies to the Lord Jesus Christ by using his own personal testimony. And so they listened intently as he spoke about what God, what Jesus had done in his life up until the moment in verse 21 where Jesus said, I am sending you away from the Jews and to the Gentiles. So if you have your Bibles open in front of you, and I always want to encourage you to do that, uh, look with me at verse 21 in chapter 22, and I'll read through verse 24. And Paul here, in giving his personal testimony, said, And he, he being Jesus, And Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Like I said, the Jewish crowd doesn't like this at all. Verse 22, Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, that's, that's, that's quite a picture to me. They are so angry, they are undressing and ripping their clothes off. And then they are reaching down to express their outrage. They're picking up handfuls of dust and they're throwing it up in the air. Um, it just seems um, like a what a commotion what an immature commotion so anyway uh, verse 24 the tribute ordered him ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they are shouting against him like this so he's brought them into the barracks. Uh, he's going to be examined uh, to find out why they hate him so much uh, by use of torture. The um, Roman commander has ordered that he be flogged. So, um, to find out why they're so mad. So listen now to verses 25 through 29. But when they had stretched Paul out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribute and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And this is kind of humorous. Um, Verse 27, so the tribute came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, and Paul said, Yes. The tribute answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Apparently you could buy your citizenship and bribe people to, to make you as a citizen. Um, so the politicians were just as corrupt then as they are today. Uh, verse 28, uh, or Paul said, um, well, actually, I didn't buy my citizenship. I became a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. Uh, they realized they were on. They were just. They were about to be in trouble had they started flogging him. 
And the tribute was so afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he, and that he had bound him. So, what's happening here, Paul's about to be flogged and he uses his Roman citizenship to escape the flogging. Now, Paul had been beaten before, but he had not been flogged in this manner. He had received from the Jews on at least five occasions the 39 lashes minus one. He had also been flogged with, uh, with rods, or what we would call today caning, uh, at least three times by the Romans. But this flogging that he was about to receive was far worse than any of those. F.F. Bruce says that people actually died from the scourge or were rendered crippled for life. And if you've seen that, that uh, brutal scene in the uh, movie The Passion of the Christ where Jesus is strung out on that uh, large millstone and beaten, well, this is the kind of flogging that the Apostle Paul was about to receive. Um, the whip consisted of a wooden handle with leather straps, and in the leather straps, embedded in the leather straps, were uh, pieces of metal or bone that would just rip into your skin, or dig into your skin, and then rip your skin apart. And it was not limited to just 39 lashes. So as he was being stretched out, Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship, and he asks if it is lawful for the, for the soldiers to whip him. And I believe this teaches us that as Christians, our faith does not require us to be passive and simply take what comes at us. Oh, well, God's in control. I'll just trust Him and take whatever comes. See how Paul, very shrewdly, at the right moment, asked if it's lawful. And he doesn't appeal to God. He appeals to his Roman citizenship. Uh, we, do, we do not, as Christians, need to shun the laws that our citizenship as Americans afford us. Paul knows his rights and he asserts them. And uh, some Christians do make the mistake that Paul should have, of saying that Paul simply should have prayed, trusted God without resorting to secular means. But Paul, I'm arguing, and I think the text teaches us that Paul, by faith, uses all the means that God has placed at his disposal. God, in his sovereignty, caused Paul to be born as a Roman citizen. And so he uses that uh, for his good, for the promotion of the gospel, and uh, I believe also for God's glory. In fact, he doesn't only appeal to a secular um, to a, to a, a secular way out here only, but rather several times in our text we'll see that he does this. And since the Roman commander is unwilling to beat the truth out of Paul, what the Roman commander then decides to do is call a uh, hasty meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a Jewish uh, religious ruling body. And he thinks if I, the, the, the Roman commander thinks if I gather the, Rome, the, I mean the Jewish uh, religious leaders together, that then we can find out why everybody is so angry at Paul. And this meeting of the Sanhedrin is not a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin. In fact, it's held right outside the army barracks. Um, and apparently the high priest does not come dressed in all his high priestly regalia. 
So, uh, as you have your Bibles, look with me at chapter 22, verses 30, going into chapter 23, verse 10. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, the Roman commander unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, and, and son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the... Uh, to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension broke out among them or arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and Pharisees' party um, stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribute, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away um, from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So... Um, Paul can barely get one sentence out of his mouth before Ananias, the high priest, ordered him to be really punched uh, in the mouth. The, the Greek word does not give the sense of slapping, but rather it's, it's a more violent. It's like the, the sense of being punched in the mouth. Now, uh, we don't simply have the Bible's history about Ananias the high priest. We also have uh, Jewish writers of that time talking about Ananias the high priest. He was a very wicked man. He was greatly despised by the Jews of his day. They even made, a little, made up a little saying about him that has passed down uh, to us. And uh, they basically took Psalm 24-7 and changed it. Um, and uh, and made it about Ananias. And, and it translated says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, that Yohanan bin Narabi, and this is Ananias, the disciple of Pinquai, may go in and fill his belly with the divine sacrifices. So uh, he was... He was a wicked man, greatly hated. Undoubtedly, there were many Pharisees in the room that despised Ananias, the high priest. Uh, Eventually, the religious zealots uh, chased um, Ananias down, hunted him down like an animal, cornered him, and killed him. Uh, He was so wicked. Well, after after Ananias ordered that Paul be struck in the mouth... um, 
Paul realized that he wasn't going to receive a fair hearing. He gets one, barely one sentence out of his mouth. He's, they're saying, and the high priest is saying, go strike him in the mouth. And he changes his approach entirely. And so what he did is what F.F. F. Bruce called, uh, or what F.F. F. Bruce said, um, he said that the Apostle Paul threw an apple of discord into the ranks of the Sanhedrin. Listen again to verse 6. Paul, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council's brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So here again, we see Paul using the means available to him that are truthful, but are not what we would classify as exclusively spiritual. Uh, it is further surprising that Paul would call himself a Pharisee when both Jesus and Paul uh, spoke so badly about the, the Pharisees. But Paul was willing to use this point of contact with his enemies in order to attack his other enemies. You know, you all know the saying, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, that's basically what Paul is doing here. He realized that the Pharisees are the enemies of the Sadducees, and so he aligns himself with the Pharisees being himself a former, or maybe he even is considering himself still a Pharisee who really believes in the resurrection of the dead and that Jesus um, was the Messiah. So anyway, he, he does this, and he uh, utilizes the co-belligerency of the Pharisees against the Sadducees. And uh, he exploits the difference in, differences in theology, um, and it works. I found myself in a similar situation to the Apostle Paul, um, where I had to craft an, an argument uh, to assure myself of using, uh, or rather of winning the debate, but I had to put the, the biblically moral arguments to the side uh, for a while in order to win the debate first. What happened was in South Carolina, um, we had um, counsel for the aging, and my wife knows where this is about to go, um, because it was a really big deal. In fact, Peter Jennings came down and covered it. Um, but what happened was the Council of the Aging, in order to raise money, they got the little old ladies from around uh, Aiken, South Carolina, to disrobe and take uh, pictures, new pictures. Uh, they said tastefully, you know, covered up by a little leaf or a, or a fence post or whatever. It, there was nothing tasteful about it. But... Um, Anyway, all the, the, the pastors of the large churches in Aiken got together, about ten of them, and wrote a letter, signed it, and sent it off to the Council of the Aging, telling them don't publish this calendar, and, and it, it caused a, a, quite a controversy. And um, the Council of the Aging wanted the, the pastors to come and speak to them. Every one of those cowardly pastors refused to go. <laughs> and uh, one of those pastors was the pastor I was serving under, not Mike Phillips who came down here, but, but a different one. And he said, well, my mother-in-law is coming into town, so would you go um, to the council in my place? 
And I called him a coward to his face. <laughs> but uh, I took one of the elders from our church and I went. I was the only pastor that showed up. But I did not sign the letter. So I told him, I said, look, I am here. I did not sign this letter. I don't want to be here. I was told to be here to represent uh, my pastor. Uh, believe me, I don't want to be here. And I said, and I have issues. Since I didn't sign this letter, I'm not addressing the issues in this letter. I'm addressing something else. And instead of trying to address it biblically, I said, number one, this, uh, have, this calendar is causing conflicts within our community. And I could point objectively to all the letters in the, uh, to the editor that were flooding the papers. I could, I could point to... Um, actual conversations and broken friendships that had taken place in the the community. I said also it um, uh, was causing moral confusion for our young people because the young people were asking, why is grandmommy dressed, or not dressed, but uh, undressed in this calendar and why is this such a big deal? And, And it was something else. I can't remember what my third little argument was, but they were all objectively true. Um, and what ended up happening was the woman who was the head of the council, she was loaded for bear on the whole range of other, on the biblical arguments she wanted to, and she would, she was just spitting angry. And I would say, well, I didn't come here to talk about that. I, I believe it's immoral. That's my opinion. You have your opinion. We differ. I said, I came to talk about these other objective issues, all the broken relationships. All the, 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 the controversy that is stirred up in our community, and I want you to pull it because of that. Well, she just was not hearing me because she had her pre-prepared arguments. And what ended up happening that was so amazing is that the other council members were making my arguments to her, trying to get her to understand. I don't think they agreed with my arguments, but the press was there, and she was not looking as a, like a very sympathetic person. Because I'm just sitting there smiling, saying, "I don't want to be here," you know. I just am concerned about our community, and and and, uh, and it ended up working um, real well uh, for me. I, I had a great time, but um, though I was able to simply appeal on. Secular means, objective means, in order then to, uh, to really destroy her argument and, and make the case that I wanted to make. And so that's, that's what Paul is, is uh, doing here. He is enlisting these co-belligerents in order to, um, to win the argument. I, I was thinking also of some applications you know, as Protestants, you know, we believe that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. Roman Catholicism um, believes in their theology that it is through the church, it is through the um, it is through your good works, and so we we are enemies in that regard. But yet we are also. We believe in the Trinity. We believe um, in Jesus Christ. We believe in the same set of morals. And we are able as co-belligerents to stand up against our culture and, um, and speak out against some of the moral evils that are being pressed forward. Edith Schaefer, in order to appeal to, 
to, to Jews and talk to them about Jesus used to say that uh, Christianity is Jewish. I used to get together with a Roman Catholic priest at uh, Zaxby's up in South Carolina, and we would talk about um, the Christian faith and about our differences. And I would appeal to Augustine, and I would show him what Augustine would say, and I would tell him, you know, I'm a better Catholic than you are. <laughs> and uh, he ended up uh, not coming to any more of our little meetings. Paul here throws the meeting into such disarray that, again, he had to be dragged away for his own safety. And then we find out that Paul is still not out of danger. I'm just going to simply read verses 12 through 35, if you'll follow along, uh, without really making any comments here uh, in the interest of time. After Paul is taken away... Look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They, were, they went to the chief priest and the elders and said, we have, strictly, excuse me, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with, with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So the son of Paul's sister heard their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and bound him to the tribune and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside he asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribute dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers uh, with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter uh, to this effect. And then we have the copy of the letter. And so um, this is what happens. Paul does not simply sit back and trust that God is going to protect him. Now he is sure, absolutely, positively sure, that God is going to protect him. We'll see that in one moment. But, um, but Paul still acts. He sends his nephew to the tribune to tell them what is happening. You've probably heard the story uh, the little illustration, I've heard it a few times, so I assume you've heard it, of the man who was, uh, who was a Christian and he was trusting God. 
to save him and a big flood a hurricane came and, and, and started flooding and um, ahead of the flood the, the police came by and said you need to evacuate uh, before you die he said um, God will take care of me I'll stay here until God uh, uh, because he's going to protect me and so then the water starts rising more and more and a guy in a boat comes down the street and says hop in the boat and I'll take you away you know to safety don't worry, I trust God, he'll protect me. You know, and finally he's up on his roof and the guy in a helicopter comes down, hey, you know, climb up the ladder to the helicopter and we'll rescue you. No, you don't have to do that. God's going to protect me. Well, the flood keeps rising higher and higher and finally the guy dies. He's standing before God and, and he says, God, I thought you were going to protect me. And God said, well, I sent you a police officer and a boat and a helicopter. Why didn't you get on? So, um, Paul acts. He doesn't simply sit back and have this passive piety. Um, How do I know that Paul is certain that God's going to take care of him? Look back to verse 11 of chapter 23. The following night, this is before he learns of the plot, but the following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem... So you must also testify also in Rome. Paul, being, being human, is getting despondent. I mean, he's been almost torn to pieces uh, a few times now. And so the Lord Jesus appears to him uh, to encourage him and says, You're going to testify uh, about me also in Rome. And our Lord Jesus makes to us promises that are just as firm, just as true. Our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 says that he will provide us with food and shelter and clothing. In Romans 8.28, God says he will work all things together for our good. The Bible also says he will use the church to make disciples and also to perfect the saints. But we cannot sit back and hope that it will happen without our responsible obedience and wisdom. Furthermore, there are forces that are working to marginalize and even destroy uh, Christian morality and faith here in our country. Uh, there are, in, in our, even in our own denomination, we had to change our... Um, our uh, book of order because there are people trying to say if you preach against this um, this set of morality and it also has political implications we'll take away your tax uh, exemption or we will throw the, the uh, pastors in jail and that is even further along the case in Canada uh, it's even greater threat there we have laws We have a constitution that protects our rights. We have all kinds of means, whether politically or legislatively, um, and even beyond that, that we are not simply, not only allowed to use, but I believe as God, as, as Paul used these means, I believe that the Lord Jesus expects us to use the same means. However, 
at the same time, because our Lord Jesus is the sovereign God of the universe, we can trust Him. We must trust Him first. Where does God's sovereignty and responsibility intersect? God is sovereign. And that establishes our responsibilities. We call out to Him, God, help us. We know You are able because You are the sovereign King. And then we work with all our hearts using every means available, every righteous means available to us. Let's pray together. Lord, as I've gone uh, longer than normal, uh, even on a communion Sunday, I pray that you would settle our hearts, help us to worship uh, our Lord Jesus and commune with Him as we... um, Now celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, if you would take your Trinity hymnals...